The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Does Europe face a massive fuel crisis this winter? Whilst Russia has kept gas supplies going, it has been very limited, stopping Europe from building up big reserves to make it through winter. And what if Russia stops supplies altogether? It's their choice, it's a natural choice, and uh, they can close or they can open. Um, the fact is, it shows that in fact uh, last year, years we were not able to be more independent as a continent from others. So when uh, nice, uh, when life is nice, everything is okay. But uh, when uh, the situation gets uh, more stressy, we say we see that uh, we get into troubles too. The Luxembourg Prime Minister, Javier Bettel, speaking on CNN. And things are getting more stressy, but would Russia really cut off gas supplies? Well, Sibet Kazagoilu, an energy expert on CNN, has this to say. Well, that's not in Russia's interest anyway, so they will continue. Now a little bit lower, but come winter they will probably raise the supplies as well. Um, so this has two, 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 two advantages from the Russian perspective, of course. So they keep the European resilience relatively low ahead of winter on one side. And on the other side, of course, they are you know, jacking up the gas price, basically. I mean, today it's approaching again 200 euro per megawatt hour. And that's basically welcome cash for Russia. Meanwhile, does Europe really have any choice? The International Energy Agency said back in March that Europe had to reduce its reliance on Russian gas. But it was too late by then. What we have done. In this uh, report, we look at what we could do, what kind of practical actions uh, we could put in uh, place that would significantly reduce the 45% of import dependency of Europe on Russian gas. That IEA report, by the way, pretty much said, in conclusion, buy gas from elsewhere. Brilliant. Meanwhile, Europe has agreed amongst its member nations to cut consumption, so is that really the only choice? We need to have, like you said, shorter showers, colder showers, save where we can, so perhaps it's one of the areas where we will get over this is through public awareness campaigns. That was Arthur Miller, a journalist at Deutsche Welle. And you know what? I am fairly sure they are not having short, cold showers in Russia. So who is really the winner in this battle over gas supplies to Europe? And will the European community hold its resolve, or will we see them splinter as winter sets in and prices rise even higher. In short, is there a solution to the European gas crisis? That's this week. The Y Curve. So are Germans going to take shorter, colder showers? Are the French perhaps not going to cook mm. with quite so much gas? Is it all going to be a bit of a desperate... I think yeah. it is, isn't it? Because you look at mm. what has been done so far and it seems like you know the, the measures that are being taken just aren't enough and it does feel like Putin has got the upper hand on this you know if 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 we don't buy gas from him then he'll sell it to somebody else he'll sell it to the, the yeah. Chinese well see what we need to do is distinguish in this between politics and economics and obviously they, they interfere mm. with each other the economics of it who's going to pay where does the money end up yeah. uh, how much more is it going to be than it has been before and what effect is that going to well, have and already it's been horrendously more and you can't help feeling that if mm. Putin has the power he could just say at any point I'm just going to turn the gas off Mm. And how is how are they going to respond in Europe? I mean, they're trying to take steps, but I don't think in there in, in at the centre of it all. I don't think the the European community actually believes that is going to happen. Well, That's, they've got to because he's made it very. Well, I mean, everyone says it's going to happen. It's been tra- it's been put out there for a long time. They knew right from the fall of Angela Merkel. They knew that the policy that the Germans had pursued, which was really be very strongly dependent on Russia, that gave them a vulnerability. That they were talking about that six months ago. Mm. But and what have they done? Well, 
we they've, don't know. They've cut, you know, they've said, well, we'll cut usage of gas by 15% across the European community, and it's going to be a voluntary thing. I mean, you know, and and it and the the problem is that some countries obviously are heavily dependent on this gas, others less so. Right. So, uh, so what's the alternative? I mean, we, we we're pretty clear that's what's going to happen. The taps are going to be turned off one way or another because Putin can get the money from elsewhere. Yeah. Because again, it does come down to economics as well as politics. But at this stage, where do you get it? Well, LNG, get it in from from the Gulf, uh, ship it in. But that's not enough. I mean, you can't do it as easily as quickly. The, there is another way, of course, which is do some sort of deal with Putin, which is not a popular choice. But well, this is where the politics get. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. I don't. I don't think there's the capacity politically to do that, unless or until the German and French voters say, "Hang on a second, we want a warmer, longer shower." This is time to get real. Sorry, sorry, Ukraine. Sorry, Zelensky. Mm. We'll do a deal. I quite like a cold shower, I have to say, but only in summer. Yeah, you're, a, <laughs> you're a very particular person. <laughs> well, these are Germans. Yeah, we're talking just, about just Germans love cold showers. Phil Dobby turned sideways onto me this morning. I swear he disappeared. He has. He, he is a health nut these days. So oh. the cold shower is simply part of that. It is part of that regime. Uh, well, look, let's uh, let's have a look at what is happening in in Europe. David Gross is a distinguished fellow at the Centre for European Study Policy Studies, I should say, in Brussels. He's been an economic advisor to the European Commission and the European Parliament and the French Prime Minister and the French Finance Minister and he's worked for the International Monetary he, he Fund. He knows what it's all about. I think he does, doesn't he? How, how serious, how potentially majorly problematic do you think the energy crisis is going to be in the coming months for Europe? Um, very serious with a potential for creating tensions, very strong tensions within the EU. I underline potential, I underline potential because I still expect uh, that not to materialize. Really? So what, how is it going to play out then in your mind? Because, I mean, I look at it, it, you know, from outside, it looks like we're sleepwalking into, into disaster. I mean, and I'm not sure what the EU can do about this, but we know that 40% of all gas consumption is coming from Russia. The EU has had this voluntary 15% cut in gas consumption, but, you know, that's voluntary and it's only 15%. That doesn't seem to be the answer, does it? Um, no, I mean, these... Uh this voluntary stuff by the Commission is uh, a political signal. Um, some people tell me it's an important signal. I, I don't care for it. The key point for me is that energy and particular gas prices are rising very steeply all across the EU. And as long as countries do not interfere with the price mechanism, it is actually likely that uh, in the aggregate we will save more than 15%. Now, that's really interesting. So what you're saying is that the, the thing that will deal with this crisis is what the crisis produces, uh, which is high prices. So, so it's almost the automatic uh, effect of the market will solve the problem. Is that right? Yes. If you let the market mechanism work, then the amount of uh, savings, which we need 15%, is totally within the realm of possible without major disruptions to uh, uh, to industry or people freezing at home. But, I mean, aren't people going to freeze at home because an industry close if they really can't afford to pay these higher prices? Isn't it going to... I mean, because obviously less has to be used. Uh, and and I, 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 we'll look at that 15% figure as to whether that's enough in a, in a second. But if less has to be used, then somebody is not using it. And that is going to be the people who can least afford to pay, which is going to be the uh, the, the low-income homeowner and, and those businesses which are heavily reliant on uh, on gas to produce the goods that they make. 
Okay, uh, um, two uh, points, let's say separately for heating. It is well known by all experts that uh, you can reduce your gas consumption for heating by up to 20% without really freezing. Uh, you reduce the temperatures a bit, you make sure that you heat only those rooms you're going into. Perhaps you wear a sweater from time to time. This is not freezing, this is a mild discomfort. Uh, that should should do it. But, pe- pe- but people haven't recognized that, have they? I think that's, and that maybe that's your point, that if, you, if the prices go high enough, people will realize this is serious. But at the moment, because they're not feeling those price pressures, they are still, you know, consuming as much as they were before, perhaps. Maybe, maybe reducing it a little bit, but n- not any wholesale change in their lifestyle. Exactly. And actually, uh, the evidence from a little bit from Belgium and Germany is that Given the gas price increase which has happened so far, which are partial, already we see a reduction in consumption. But isn't there another point here, Daniel, which is that, that if the 40%, which, which is what uh, Germany gets uh, from, from uh, Russia, I think I'm right in that, of its gas, uh, if the actual pipe is closed off completely, not just reduced, but actually shut off, uh, even with all these price things that you're talking about, will there be enough for the most basic things that that Germany and other European countries need to, to fuel industry. Okay, um, I will come back to the whether poor people can afford it. Right, we come back can come back to that later. Uh, the forty percent of uh, Germany getting from from Russian gas is misleading uh, because there is a global market for LNG, and uh, yeah, prices are as high, almost as high in, as in Europe, in Asia. So, so could LNG replace then? You're saying it could completely replace that 40%? That's an awful lot of LNG being shipped on an awful lot of boats, isn't it? Um, so it, it, it would be 30% of the EU total, right? We have to think, think about the EU together because we have one integrated market, right? And as long as we maintain that market, that's what I t- said earlier, as, we, as long as we maintain this market, uh, then we need to increase, we, EU total, uh, need to increase our LNG shipments uh, by about, whatever, 50%. And with the uh, floating terminals, which are now being uh, brought on stream and on board, this should be possible, not guaranteed. It should be possible by the end of the year. So, and that becomes more viable because, as you're saying, the prices of LNG have uh, have shot up in in Asia as well. This is a worldwide phenomenon. So, obviously, LNG uh, exporters will be saying, "Well, okay, uh, it makes no difference where we ship it." And in in fact, Europe is probably going to be better prepared to pay a higher price than than Asia is. Exactly. All these ships going to Japanese power stations, for example. They say, ooh, this is too expensive. Um, and then they ask, is somebody bidding a bit more? Okay, ship, turn around. So what you're saying is the capacity of energy, the amount of energy, if you like, that Europe can buy, even at these high prices, is enough to fully replace even if all Russian uh, gas supplies are, are turned off tomorrow. Well, not fully replaced. There's still going to be a short... Uh, well, is, a, a, is there going to be a, a, a shortfall? If, let's say, this... If we do 15% reduction in our in our needs, then we don't need to replace 30%, but only 15%. And the 15%, we cannot import uh, via LNG at today's capacity, import capacity. But 
had the import capacity which we should have by the end of the year we should be able to right so getting back to that point about the people who because i mean this does mean obviously i mean shipping in lng is going to be i mean before you start looking at the market mechanism the market price mechanism just the cost of shipping lng versus taking stuff through a pipe from russia is obviously going to be that much higher and then you've got all the road transport costs on top of that uh, and so there's a question of logistics actually whether you know whether there's enough trucks uh, and no, enough road no trucks no 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 no, no. All right. So and this is pipe, pipe from the ports. There's a big difference between liquefying the gas, which is technically extremely difficult, and regasify it, the LNG, because basically you have to heat it up a little bit and it bubbles out. And then mm. you have to have your ship where you do that uh, close to a land-based pipeline. Right, and you're saying we've got those pipelines and we'll have that capability to feed those pipelines by the end of the year, so we should be all right for winter. So, um, so Daniel, we, we, we were hearing from you about the energy mix, particularly in places like um, uh, Eastern Europe and also Spain and Italy, and Italy's problems in paying for uh, these kind of really high prices. Just, just give us your take on how that is going to work. Um, well, that is basically a question of how the governments react. If they promise people that they will not have to pay a higher um, gas bill, uh, then I think uh, Italy is, uh, or any government which tries to do that, um, will have big difficulties. What I, no, what I'm saying is, uh, if you do a government subsidy, it has to be extremely targeted. If you, for example, if you give people a basic amount of gas at the old price, but everything above that at the new sky-high price, that's okay. That isn't so expensive. But if you just try to freeze gas prices at somewhat the old level, then that gets very expensive. So that becomes problematic for the EU, though, doesn't it? Because you've got countries, you know, like Italy, for example, which might be more dependent than others, who are going to have to uh, subsidise more of their uh, of, of their customer base, and they are least able to afford to do it compared to, for example, you know, where we started talking about, compared to Germany. So does the EU need to cross-subsidise some of these nations somehow? Does there need to be some sort of mechanism put in place to try and counter this uh, this discrepancy in, in subsidies from one country to another? Well, that's the point. Uh, it's, you see, you don't need... There's two things which go in opposite directions. For example, Spain says uh, power stations get the gas at half the market price. The aim is to keep the price of electricity low because for them heating is not a problem, but cooling. But that favors uh, Spanish energy intensive industry and therefore distorts the market. Not very popular in the EU, that sort of thing. And if everybody does that, Mm. there might be a race uh, to subsidizing energy or electricity and gas supplies to industry. And then industry gets the stuff cheaply and will not save. And can, can individual countries could use that as a competitive edge against other countries as well, couldn't they? Within, At a high fiscal price, yeah. but some people or some countries think uh, money is free. 
public money is free, so they don't care about it. Yes, and they think that's a competitive right. advantage. So o- overall, there's got to be a, a, a community, an EU, a union policy on this. The Commission has got to get together and formulate a policy. Well, this sort of uh, subsidisation, I mean, is what the Maastricht Treaty was all about, wasn't it? So, I mean, it, it shouldn't be allowed, although, you know, increasingly because of COVID, that, that seems to have been ignored a bit lately, doesn't it? Exactly. We have a, what's called a state aid framework which in principle does not allow individual governments to provide in the cheap energy to their industries. And knocking it forward a bit on this point, Daniel, I mean, clearly what this crisis has done has concentrated a lot of minds in Europe, across the EU, on the future of energy, uh, the mess they've got into and how they get out of it. And we've heard all kinds of plans, people talking about alternative energy sources. There is, of course, the factor of net zero hovering there, the push towards avoiding uh, burning carbon fuels as far as possible, but it's, it's in the early stages. Even talk about reviving nuclear power. I mean, how does the mix of energy look going forward? Uh, nobody knows. What we do know is there's a lot of a lot of coal-powered power stations are being turned back on again, aren't they? Because that's obviously a short-term alternative that's fairly easy to ramp up. In principle, uh, um, renewables should now explode on their own without any need for public support. And therefore, uh, the big question is not so much what is the EU plans and policy mix and so on. The real question is, uh, can... Uh, member states overcome the NIMBY problem in their own backyard. And do, do you think they can? I mean, the political pressures are immense How on this. You, the political pressures are useless to convince a local citizens' initiative, which thinks that the uh, wind power station should not be located in their neighbourhood, but in somebody else's neighbourhood. But it does, sound, it does sound like you're talking about there's a, there's a day of reckoning that's coming, though, that prices will get so high that people are, you know, for giving your earlier example, realising they've got to close off rooms in the house, they've got to wear a jumper, they've got to consume less, that maybe then they will start to realise that this is a serious thing. And, and looking at alternatives, uh, it has perhaps got more uh, importance than it did perhaps a year or two ago. I'm sceptical about that, because if you think about uh, uh, these initiatives, right? The local citizens' initiatives against uh, renewable plants, right? Whether photovoltaics because they are eyesore or or wind turbines. Yeah, they always say we are exactly we agree with the importance, but just not here. This <laughs> would be much better somewhere else. Yeah, I think. Well, I think a lot of people probably would think about that if it were in their own back garden. Your back garden, I don't know. I mean, it, people are human in that sense and want their own uh, situation to be good. But, but Daniel, the, the, the need, it's both short-term and long-term needs we're talking about. Short-term, obviously, we've got to get through the winter. But longer-term, are we going to see a turnaround, perhaps for market reasons, in acceptance of nuclear, in getting coal-fired power stations back on, or, as you say, uh, an explosion, perhaps, in alternative energy sources, but in which case, which energy sources? Are we talking about solar? Are we talking about tidal? What is going to the wind? What is going to be the future? And the, and the time scale on that as well, because, I mean, we're, we're just saying, you know, we've got to get through this winter, but if we are not taking gas supplies from, from Russia and we're, we're not getting enough LNG imports from elsewhere to bridge that gap, uh, then, you know, the, the, the compromise to people's living standards 
could go on for years, and people are not going to be very happy about that. So I think the fact that we get through this winter without Russian gas, for me, has a very high probability uh, because it's now widely anticipated. The LNG stuff is being built. There are savings in Asia. Um, and uh, despite all the resistance, prices are increasing for gas for, for, uh, for household consumers. And many enterprises just say, okay, I have in principle uh, contracted gas for a very low price, but if I stop production and just sell the price on the market, I make so much more. So I just reduce or uh, stop production for a while. What about in the meantime with this high price? I mean, we've talked about, okay, maybe you subsidize uh, individual households and maybe you do subsidize businesses to, to, a, to a certain extent, although, you know, that doesn't sound like a sensible way forward because where would you draw the line on that? But how do you stop the whole the European economy basically uh, falling into an even greater recession than it seems it's heading for anyway if companies are having to uh, scale back their production because the cost of energy is just so high? Um, uh, gas is normally 1% of our economy. Right now, with the price, it's 2 or 3 Important, right? Um, but uh, I don't think... Uh, it will have more than a transitory impact, it meaning a very high price. Right. Transitory is a very dangerous word to use these days. You do do know that, don't you? We we did, of course, have transitory inflation, of course, was the big thing that the central banks were talking about. I mean, transitory, I guess, Daniel, depends on your point of view. This winter has to be got through. You said it it should happen. It can happen. Um, But... We have no guarantee that next winter things will not be the same. All we know is that the long-term elasticity of demand to to price is much higher. So if prices stay at the present level, uh, gas consumption will be even less than 50% lower uh, than this year. So over the long term, it gets easier. So the International Energy Agency came up, uh, this is back in March, actually, when this whole thing uh, kicked off, a 10-point plan which they believed uh, the European Union could use to reduce their reliance on Russian supplies by over a third. Uh, they were, you know, some of them are obvious, don't sign any new contracts with Russia, replace Russian supplies with alternative sources, we've talked about that, increase gas storage, which which we haven't, but we, we, maybe we can touch on that, accelerate the deployment of alternative energy and diversifying energy sources we've talked about that here's an interesting one windfall tax uh, to support vulnerable families from high electricity costs now we've talked about supporting those vulnerable families uh, the uk has sort of uh, had a bit of a play in the area of, of windfall taxes uh, and it sort of stands to reason doesn't it through all of these high prices though there will be and there are energy companies that are recording massive increases in profits and uh that doesn't seem equitable, does it, for that to happen? Something has to be done to try and counteract that. Yeah, windfall taxes, I, I don't really want to get into. They might be used, but it's not. You also have to realize that the hit to the European economy of high energy prices is diminished by the fact that our exporters can also increase their prices. And that's why we see actually so far record profits um, despite the high energy costs. So you're saying that they're making their money not from imports but from exports? They're making their money. I'm talking about exporters of goods whose import prices have increased, right? The input prices of energy. 
uh, but still uh, they're making profits because they can increase their export prices. So what you're saying is the overall inflation, whether it's in energy or in, as you say, the, 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 what people pay for, uh, for goods exported, in the end will equalise things? Will to some extent equalise, not fully, again, <laughs> But to some extent, yes. But it will it will soften demand, of course, when it particularly, you know. Yes, there will be a softening of demand. But I think we should not, as I said, uh, gas is 1% of our GDP normally. Now it can become 2 or 3. This uh, hit to, uh, uh, to consumption quite clear. Uh, but uh, then people uh, use somewhat less gas. Our exporters get more, so it can be mitigated to... By about one half, maybe. So just going back to that International Energy Agency uh, report, the other things they were saying were uh, get people to turn down their uh, their thermostats by one degree, which was which was which was your point. Which sounds you know, put on your pullovers. Put it, exactly, which sounds sensible, but people haven't been motivated to do that yet because they're not feeling the hurt. And then the other one, interestingly, replace gas boilers with heat pumps. Actually, even just replacing gas boilers with better gas boilers uh, is. I mean, heat pumps are. I mean, there's been a big push by the government here in the UK to try and get people to do that. Uh, it's not always possible in, in older homes, but replacing gas boilers for more efficient ones. And actually, as the price goes up, then people will look at these things, won't they? I mean, that, that's a very quick realisation. Oh, my God, this is so expensive. I now need to have a more efficient energy source. Therefore, I'm going to change the hardware which is sitting in my home. I say that because my brother, I've got two brothers, actually, both of them and my mother <laughs> have replaced their boilers in their houses over the last month. Yes, but this is for me, nothing for the next winter because there's only so much capacity in building new heat pumps and uh, bringing new boilers. Uh, so, as I said, 10, 15, 20% without a big loss of comfort with existing installations is possible. Uh, massive scale of heat pumps and all the rest requires years. Okay, well, let's go back to that point about the future of energy. Just Can I say one thing else? Yeah, please. Nuclear. Well, this is what I was going to come on to. How much will nuclear be part of the mix going forward? Uh, over the next year, a very large, a very small, perhaps important marginal contribution from Germany and if the, if the French get their stuff. Building new uh, power stations is useless to think about. They will not come on, on stream before 2035. Mm. And at that point, they're probably history. No, history, well, okay, oh. why, why history? Because they, they will have been superseded by something else? No, because I, think, I still think they might be useful, right? But that's my personal opinion. But by that time, we will have so much uh, renewables uh, that uh, I think at that point, it's much more a question of batteries and other ways to, uh, to, conser- uh, to uh, store intermittent energy uh, than uh, having these uh, big... Uh, uh, blocks uh, going going uh, on stream. All right. Well, you mentioned you mentioned renewables. Can we just get on to that? Where do you see? You, you say that, that, that this will become a natural thing. Perhaps the market will just produce uh, a vast amount more of renewable energy into the mix. But is it solar? Is it uh, wind? Is it tidal? Where is this capacity coming from? I predict that the resistance, NIMBY resistance, to anything large scale placed in our whatever our landscape will remain very strong. That leaves two uh, possibilities. Uh, Small-scale photovoltaic on people's uh, roofs and apartments. 
and offshore wind. And the solution is going to be different for each country, isn't it, of course? So, I mean, Britain, for example, has got a you know, big coastline, so is able to have a lot of uh, offshore wind farms. Not not so easy in, in Germany, but, you know, that perhaps, yeah, there is more close-at-home type, uh, type solutions that apply in Germany. So it's going to, it, it, each country is going to have a, a, a different answer to this. And you're sure it'll be enough? Because it, what you said makes it sound like it's not... Because there's always going to be enough. Because there's always that question about base load, isn't there? You know, uh, how many of these alternative energy when the sources? Wind don't blow. Yeah, exactly. Um, two things. I don't think we will achieve one hundred percent, but if we achieve eighty percent, I think our dependency on natural gas will have halved. Uh, by that time, we will have excess LNG import capacity. Our storage will loom larger to uh, supplies. So we will still need a lot of imports of, LN- of, uh, of natural gas, but I don't think we can still be blackmailed. So on that blackmail, uh, do you think uh, Mr. Putin is starting to realize this now? Do you think he, because I mean, the, the, you know, the big threat, is he going to turn off the gas? And it sounds like you, from what you're saying, well, if he does do that, we're, we're going to cope. I have no particular insight in Putin's mind. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. I, I, I wonder whether he does himself. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, but I mean, if, if he does do that, uh, we'll make it through because we've because you know from what you've been saying, we can pipe in enough. We, we're, we're building enough uh, alternatives in the short term to try and make it through winter. I mean, I mean that is good news for you know the the, the relationship that, that we have with with Russia. We can play a harder line than being subservient. He's not got that commanding power that perhaps, you know, before we started the discussion, I thought he did have. I would predict that he will play games until the winter and and when he sees that we would get through without him, he will turn on full power. Right. Because it is curious how Gazprom, you know, is saying uh, we, we've got all these problems with uh, with the technology, with uh, these turbines which are failing. And yet Gazprom has got this extensive network of gas pipelines going throughout Russia and down to Kazakhstan. And all of those seem to be working perfectly at the moment. I mean, this is, this is the thing, though, <laughs> isn't it, Daniel? I mean, the fact is he can export uh, to the east uh, and and get what he needs from that the the cost of it um, and while prices keep going up it fuels him so to the economics you've been talking about the 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 hand of the market in all this works to his advantage. Well, it does, but then if we get alternative sources of energy, and then the price starts to come down again because we're not demanding that anymore. Short run versus long run. In the short run, he seems to be winning. In the long run, every customer will ask himself, "Hmm, do I want to have a long term contract with Russia? What if we have a problem?" What will they do? With so he'll, he'll come, come begging and pleading back to, to Europe. Well, that would yeah. be nice to see. Well, but Daniel, one other big picture thought in all this. We talked about how renewables will begin to replace quite considerably what we, the energy mix we have now. But is the whole commitment to net zero that we've heard so much about, is that still in prospect? Or is the crisis of this winter and perhaps uh, four or five winters going forward going to mean that that has got to be adjusted? The Commission's got to say, look, it's not going to happen. The commitment to net zero will stay because it's meaningless. Because it won't be achieved. It's meaningless to what we are doing now. In 2035, we'll take a second look. And, and it could be better then. What you're saying is when we get to that point, we'll know whether or not we can get to 2050 at net zero. Exactly. Yeah. So you've painted quite a positive picture in that you think, you know, we will get through this winter. There'll be a bit of hardship. Uh, and there'll be a bit of nimbyism around to try and find uh, some of the the longer term solutions. 
uh, I'm just wondering whether those th- those two factors actually will be very important. That actually that 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 nimbyism will stop finding those alternatives, and the fact that people are going through this hardship will make them rethink this war in Ukraine. Could Germany, for example, say, "Well, you know what? Uh, you, you know, we, it would be nice to have the house a bit warmer. You know, Russia. You know, maybe just let them have a little bit of Ukraine, and uh, you know, let's have a ceasefire and let's try and find some sort of diplomatic solution. I mean, we don't want to see that happen. I'm just wondering whether the hardship will drive us in that direction. Um, I don't think so. In any way, even if some German politicians think that, it's irrelevant. It's it's interesting, Daniel, because you're, you're sort of assuming that the Germans and perhaps other Europeans, as you say, turn down the heating, put on a pullover. Are they really going to do that? And there won't be a political price to be paid, for example, by the Social Democrats in Germany? People get used to it. I mean, at, when you'd have to do it, it's it's new and inconvenient. Once you're used to higher gas prices a year after, it's a new normal and... Uh, you have found some ways to work around it. And uh, and anyway, everybody knows that uh, nobody, you cannot trust uh, Putin. Even if you now uh, come begging to him for more cheap gas, uh, um, who knows what he does the day after. Well, you know that, and you know, and we know that too. But it's it's just the politics of this of this situation, isn't it? That people will, you know, there will be a. I, I don't know uh, whether it's a majority or whether it's just a, a small minority. But of people who say, you know, I'm paying the price for this. I don't want this war. This war's got nothing to do with me. Why Why am I having to wear extra jumpers and uh, and and turn my thermostat down? Yeah, but in in Germany, uh, democracy doesn't work that way. The political elite now has decided on this. And we're not bad. Daniel, it's fascinating insight, actually, into the way I, I think the, the political mix here would be very different. Uh, yeah. but it's interesting in Europe, you, the way you say it. Good to talk, Daniel. It's going to be an interesting few months, isn't it, yeah. to see how it does come out. Good, Great well, to have you on. Buy some good pullovers, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. I, Thanks, Daniel. So, you know, what you were saying there mm. about uh, making it through winter. Putting but, on pullovers. But, yeah, down I, yeah, exactly. Like, that yeah. Is, I mean, I was just listening to that and saying, well, look, you know, I grew up in the north of England and that's the way yes. it is. Yes, exactly. You know, I just, mean, you just, are a hard <laughs> man. You, you're not horny-handed son of toil. Oh, we just, I mean, just look at you, you know. Yeah. Clearly a man I'm, who's... I'm a what? Well, horny-handed son of toil. You know, you've, you've slaved in the pits. You've <laughs> done have. all those kind of things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So anyway, so next week we are going to visit the North. Uh, well, well from, we're not. from our convenient place in the south of England, but we, uh, but we're going to ask the question: yes. Is it still grim up there? Because yes. of course, uh, yeah, yeah, it's grim. I mean, it, does leveling up? Has leveling up in any sense happened? Mm. Uh, objectively, is it better? Are the facilities better? The opportunities better? Are the uh, are the amounts of money being spent mm. any more than they were since twenty nineteen? I'm jumping on to the conclusion that the answer to all of that is no. Well, but then we went out. into today's edition with me thinking that it, you know Europe was a basket case when it came to gas supplies. Yeah, and so. Maybe they will get through the winter all right. If yeah. that's what uh, what Daniel thought. But no, we're let, thinking maybe the north of England will make it through the winter. Yeah. They ask that question every year. Well, so we'll look at that next week and see. You know, has has the government really delivered in any? any way whatsoever on what they promised. That's what we'll be talking about next week on on The the Y Curve. curve. I like the way we did that in unison. The Y (laughs) Curve.